Welcome to the Historical Motion Picture Organization, a podcast in which I interpret ancient historical events as if they were the basis for dramatized HBO-style productions. Our first fictional HBO production, The Poison King, will explore the life and times of King Mithridates VI of Pontus in his struggles against the Roman Republic and his attempts to preserve the existence of the waning Hellenistic world. In the previous podcast, Mithridates' fragile peace with Rome quickly unraveled with the inevitable return to conflict. Episode 8 of our fictional HBO series, The Poison King, opens with Cotta still bottled up at Chalcedon, but Mithridates is smart enough to know to just let him be. In a war council scene, the king orders the bulk of his forces to deal with the far more experienced and capable Lucullus. Mithridates' next objective is the Roman allied settlement of Sisychus, a port town on the coast of the Propontis. Given its location, Sisychus would be an invaluable staging point for any future Mithridatic invasion of western Anatolia, now a kind of gateway to Asia. It's time for another large set-piece battle to grace the screens of our viewers. The siege of Sisychus begins with huge Mithridatic forces encircling the town. The inhabitants of Sisychus are folk with a more pro-Roman outlook, In fact, some of their mercenaries have only recently been slaughtered by Mithridates at Chalcedon, remember after Cotta left them to their own devices outside the city walls. Mithridates' desire to capture the area may not just be strategic in that case, it's personal too, and the Mithridatic forces begin preparing huge siege weapons to bombard the city walls. The process takes too long, however, Lucullus is experienced enough to know to leave Chalcedon alone for now, and instead lays a perimeter around Mithridates. So now we've got a kind of siege upon a siege situation here, but Lucullus knows that his forces are dwarfed by Mithridates' numbers, so direct attack is not attempted by the Romans. But the advantage here actually lies with them. Lucullus becomes aware that Mithridates only has a certain amount of food and provisions remaining, and winter is approaching fast. The Romans elect to keep Mithridates' forces pinned in against the town walls and harass their supply lines, but otherwise they'll make no major moves and simply wait for the Pontic armies to begin to starve. Mithridates then receives news of another setback. Sertorius has been murdered in Hispania ending any potential future invasion of Italy together. Former supporters of Sertorius have been clandestinely sending information to Lucullus since hearing of Sertorius's death, in order to get back in good standing with the Senate now their leader is dead. They've also convinced Mithridates to pull forces away from an important mountain pass, his only supply route on land. They achieve this by lying to Mithridates, telling him that several Roman legions are ready to defect to the Pontic side. Mithridates, now in a race against starvation, first tries to induce the Sisychans to surrender by executing hundreds of their men he'd captured earlier at Chalcedon. When this fails to break the defenders' morale, a new version of the Sambuca siege engine assaults the walls from the sea. Although momentarily stunned, 
The Sizigans pour boiling hot tar down onto the vessels holding the Sambuca tower up. Eventually the Sambuca crushes its own support vessels and collapses. Following this failure, Mithridates attempts three times in one afternoon to directly assault the defensive walls using more siege weapons and infantry. But again, the Sizigans hold their lines. In the same vein as our other major set-piece battles, the Siege of Sisygus is a prolonged, uninterrupted scene of savagery and revolting violence, switching between extreme wide shots to convey the varying movements of the forces, and eye-level coverage of both the Mithridatic forces outside the walls and the Sisygans on top of them. As the Mithridatic forces continue to try and break down the town walls, the spectre of famine haunts the besiegers, Mithridates gets word that his men are eating weeds, mules, roots, even their own dead comrades. Plague is beginning to spread due to the lack of proper burial of corpses, and Mithridates elects to cut loose a section of his cavalry, with the intention of tracking through the winter snows and thereby relieving some of the strain on the available food supplies. As the starving and feeble army struggles through the winter snows, A Roman cavalry force, still waiting in the mountains to the west, ambushes and annihilates the Mithridatic cavalry, crossing the Rindicos River. To add further to Mithridates' misfortune, gale force winds topple and wreck more of his siege engines. This is kind of reminiscent of Rhodes, isn't it? Mithridates has the capabilities to take this town. He's got a huge army, he's got cavalry, he's got siege weapons but just one misfortune after another has completely stymied him. Everything he tries is failing here. And he decides at last to round up his forces and attempt a breakout from Sisygus. There's a very misguided attempt to use the plentiful gold he still has to bribe Roman forces into letting him escape. It backfires horribly, with the Romans capturing the gold and still hitting Mithridates' forces quite hard. Mithridates' battered remnants retreat to Nicomedia. Mithridates himself flees back to Pontus to arrange the defence of the heartland itself against what he knows is an impending Roman assault. Although the war seems to be proceeding well for Lucullus, with Roman control over Bithynia reasserted, there is nonetheless a lot of discontent bubbling within his camp. His plans to invade Pontus itself are met with a pretty lukewarm reception, His men are tired, wary. They're concerned at this point really only with plundering. They appear to be losing the stomach to take this fight to the next level. But Lucullus understands that unless Mithridates is captured or killed, there will inevitably be another war with him in the future. He'll just keep turning up like a bad smell, rotting and corrupting the East and preventing the Romans from restoring order. Despite the legionaries grumbling, Roman forces now invade Pontus itself. They spread out against the Pontic countryside, against the backdrop of tension between Lucullus and his soldiers. In their eyes, he's an aristocrat. You know, he's cold and aloof. The ordinary grunts have nothing in common with their commander. They want plunder, and then they want to go home. A decisive battle where they can crush Mithridates once and for all isn't really at the top of their agenda. Lucullus, thinking of bigger picture stuff here, is well aware of Mithridates' uncanny ability to avoid capture and raise new armies even after a massive defeat. He also knows that Mithridates can very easily slip away across the Caucasus, 
and find refuge with his powerful son-in-law, Tigranes. The kingdom of Armenia is a vast and mighty entity, and Lucullus is wary of having to fight them too. He doesn't want to press Mithridates too hard, only to have him slip away and disappear again. Lucullus orders Cotta, who isn't going to be trusted with very important tasks anymore, to lay siege to Heraclea, a prosperous coastal city-state on the northwest shoreline of Anatolia. Heraclea, founded sometime around 560 BC, has often retained a degree of autonomy throughout this period, but some of Mithridates' troops have garrisoned it in the wake of the siege of Sisychus. Lucullus orders another lieutenant, Triarius, to take a naval force and make sure that any Pontic ships don't try to reclaim the Black Sea. The siege of Heraclea drags on for two years. Cotta isn't the most talented military commander, and he doesn't make much progress. But as always, there's drama afoot. Macaris, who's Mithridates' son, and acts as governor of the Bosphoran kingdom for him, has had enough of dear old dad. He makes a deal with Triarius, though not Cotta, who he appears to distrust. His deal with Triarius involves him essentially stopping any grain shipments to Heraclea, and defecting to the Roman side to become a friend and ally of Rome. Conochorix, Mithridates' commander in Heraclea, also decides to abandon the king. Triarius and his forces begin savagely sacking what was allegedly a beautiful city, almost coming to blows with Cotta's men when they hear of this and, you know, feel cheated of their prize. I mean, wouldn't that be a great shot for this episode? I just kind of pictured two groups of Romans thumping their heads off each other while Heraclius smolders in the background. History really is something, isn't it? And all the while this is going on, Lucullus and the bigger Roman forces are still hoping to pin Mithridates down for a decisive showdown, which finally comes at the Battle of Kabira. Lucullus has very carefully manoeuvred into a solid position, occupying an old fortress overlooking heights. But the trade-off for such a good position like this is supply. Roman forces are now cut off from the rest of their holdings in Pontus, and have to send out foraging parties for supplies. One of these foraging parties is ambushed by Mithridatic cavalry, and all hell breaks loose. And remember, everything I'm describing here is going to be in the show. Just because I'm not directly or specifically describing it, doesn't mean it's not going to be there. Everything we're talking about here, all these battles, these encounters, these exchanges, everything you're seeing in your mind is going in our show. I'm no military strategist, and even after being a history fan for so many years, I often forget about the influence of supply and logistics on the outcome of any battle. Mithridates' attempts to stomp on the Romans' bellies drives the momentum forward here. Pontic cavalry, too impatient, attempt to ambush the Roman supply train on a steep rocky trail, instead of waiting for the Romans to reach the open plains below. Using the narrow spacing to their advantage, the Romans butcher the Mithridatic forces, whose horses slip on the wet rocks and can't manoeuvre properly in such a steep, confined space. The Romans literally throw some of the Mithridatic cavalry over the cliff. Back at the Mithridatic HQ, things are getting very tense. Mithridates has been trying to hide and downplay the severity of these defeats, but again, another several thousand of his men and horses are gone. Rumours are swirling around the camp, and the first tinges of panic are beginning to set in. In what will be a magnificent scene to add to our 8th episode, 
Mithridates assembles his top commanders and aides. Doroilus, his lifelong friend from childhood. Hermaeus, his magi priest. Eunuch advisors Bacchides and Ptolemaeus, as well as his top generals. And although in reality Gordius is probably governing Cappadocia and he may not have been in attendance here, I'm going to place him here at this conference for the sake of dramatic license. In a long, tense and emotional exchange about the decisions made during this war and how it's being conducted, it's decided that Mithridates will retreat to Armenia and seek refuge with Tigranes. His top lieutenants, including Doroilus, agree to slip away quietly with Mithridates just before dawn, as to not panic the army. They plan to meet the following day at the town of Comana. Mithridates slips out of his royal regalia and dresses like a commoner. And of course, the plan to prevent panic does exactly the opposite. Mithridates' troops, already on the verge of nervous breakdowns from constant battle stress, hear about the planned flight before the general order is even given and total hysteria overcomes the camp. Adrienne Mayer in The Poison King describes how she imagines this image. Quote, Mithridates planned to give the general order for retreat at daybreak, but his frightened soldiers heard the commotion in the night and jumped to the conclusion that their high command was abandoning them. Panic raced throughout the camp. In the chaos, the men attacked their own baggage trains. Mithridates dashed out of his tent and ran among his soldiers, shouting and pleading for calm in every dialect he knew. His second-in-command, Doroilus, throwing on his purple robe, rushed out to join the king in the tumult. They tried to reassure the crowd that they were not abandoning them, that all would depart together at daylight, but no one could hear the king's words in the mad crush. He and Doroilus were separated. Hermaeus, the royal seer, was one of those trampled to death by the mob at the gates. And Mithridates... The king was swept up, alone and on foot, in the torrent, borne along by the crowd surging out into the dark road to Kamana. In the midst of this chaos, Doroilus, wearing a purple Persian cloak, is stabbed to death by his own men. Mithridates' oldest and closest comrade, his brother-in-arms since the beginning, before the beginning even, is cut down. The psychological impact of such a personal loss will be devastating to Mithridates. And I'm going to give this bitter event one more twist. I'm going to have it that Doroilus donned Mithridates' cloak in order to protect his king and lifelong friend from the stampede. There's something kind of pathetic and deflated about how Doroilus dies. Is he cut down in the thick of battle, bravely fighting the hated Romans, No, he's stabbed in the back by his own men, who have been driven to the point of insanity with the constant warfare and butchery. Mithridates' hold over these people is evaporating. What options does Mithridates have now? Well, not many. He decides to go on the lam and travels incognito to the kingdom of Armenia to seek refuge in the court of Tigranes. It might be interesting to frame this journey as a parallel to when Mithridates and his boys were in exile from Pontus back in episode 1. Here he is again, four decades later, on an exciting, romantic journey, on the run. Well, actually not really. It's a very different set of circumstances now. Back then there was everything to hope for. 
to fight for, to dream of. Now that dream is shattered. Mithridates is an old man, running out of options and running out of time. The Royalist, his companion since the genesis of his story, is dead. Perhaps as Mithridates tries to catch some sleep, exhausted from travelling, he stares up at the stars and hears his old friend in his mind. Bittersweet nostalgia from a better time. Is that all he has now? Tigranes isn't exactly delighted to get word that Mithridates has arrived in his court seeking protection. He doesn't share his father-in-law's appetite for fighting wars against the Romans. Sources claim that Tigranes kept Mithridates at bay for two years, stashing him in remote Armenian estates before he finally meets with him. Time and time again, his father-in-law has involved him in struggles in the west, but Tigranes' eyes are more often to the south, dreaming of cannibalising the dying Seleucid Empire. His alliance with Mithridates and the existence of a friendly state in the Kingdom of Pontus has been useful, creating a buffer between Armenia and Rome, but that buffer is evaporating now. And inside of this two years, Lucullus has dispatched a certain brother-in-law of his, Pulcher, as an ambassador to Tigranes, to try and deal with Mithridates' presence in the Armenian court. Historians believe that it is around this time that Mithridates meets Hypsocratia. This ferocious warrior will have a huge impact on the final years of Mithridates' life. Hypsocratia, and again, take my pronunciation with a pinch of salt, is a nomadic horsewoman and Amazon warrior from the Caucasus Mountains, who now fights for Mithridates' cause. Meanwhile, the Roman conquest of Pontus continues. Unable to control his soldiers baying for blood and loot, the beautiful coastal city of Amazus has been utterly ruined, the Roman fire is only put out by a heavy rainstorm. Lucullus, showing some hints of humanity, is able to take Sinope without as much bloodshed, but nonetheless still with the loss of 8,000 Sinopeans. I have in my mind here a, a really cool scene, and to a significant extent this one is kind of my creation. There's no historical source that claims this event ever happened. It's a purely fictional creation for this show. While the rank and file of the Roman legions plunder Sinope, Lucullus and his top commanders go directly to Mithridates' palace. Lucullus gives strict orders that only he and a few Roman commanders are to enter the enormous building. The punishment for any Roman soldier who disobeys this order is death. As Lucullus and company enter the palace, they are cowed into stunned silence and eerie contemplation. There's a scene from Band of Brothers which I'm kind of making an homage to here. In the final episode of the series, Easy Company explore the eagle's nest. The atmosphere in these scenes is incredible. I mean, this is one of Hitler's haunts. This is where, you know, their mortal enemy who they fought against for years skulked about, plotting his domination of the world. What conversations were had here? The luxury, the Nazi insignia hanging from the walls, the smells, the eerie quiet. 
the echoes in such a cavernous, empty space. And this is what I see when Lucullus and company explore Mithridates' private lair. This is the kind of vibe I want here. There's going to be a lot of extreme long shots. I want the Romans dwarfed by the scale and the grandeur of this palace. Nobody says much. The Romans slowly get separated as they branch off into different areas. Lucullus is completely silent as he explores Mithridates' library, reading his notes about poisons, examining beautiful sphere-shaped planetariums. The scene has a real, you know, 1945 end of the Second World War kind of vibe. But this war isn't over just yet. Where the hell is Lucullus' brother-in-law, Pulcher? He's at a city named Antioch and the Orontes to arrange a parley with Tigranes. I decided to give this scene almost a kind of comedic element to it. We've kind of got the perfect yin and yang. The rude, direct, blunt, officious Roman and the imperious, magnificent old Armenian royal. Adrian Mayer in The Poison King describes this scene as recounted by Plutarch, wherein Pulcher is referred to as Appius. Quote, At last, Shah and Shah Tigranes appeared in all his glory, clad in a red and white tunic, a purple mantle with gilt stars, and his comet-studded tiara. As his bodyguards took their place on the dais, arms folded across their chest, the monarch arranged himself on his magnificent throne. Appius, Pulcher, was summoned to the Great Hall. It was Tigranes' first audience with a Roman legate. Unimpressed by the grandeur and majestic personage, Appius brusquely handed over the letter from Lucullus and stated his mission in plain and tactless language. Hail Tigranes! Lucullus, Imperator of the Roman Army and Governor of the Province of Asia, has sent me to take charge of Mithridates, who is to be brought to Rome as our prisoner and as an ornament in our triumph. Surrender Mithridates now. If you do not, Rome will declare war on you. Plutarch's description is amusing. It must have been five and twenty years since his majesty had heard such rude speech in his court. Tigranes made every effort to listen to Appius, with a pleasant expression and forced smile, but all in attendance winced at the arrogant Roman, who did not even address Tigranes as King of Kings. Everyone could sense Tigranes' rage. But Tigranes replied evenly, I will not surrender Mithridates. If the Romans begin a war, the King of Kings will defend himself. You are dismissed. Appius prepared to depart, but he was interrupted by Tigranes' servants, bearing heaps of splendid farewell gifts. Appius refused them. More arrived. Appius selected one simple silver bowl and marched off with all speed to join the Imperator Lucullus. End quote. I just love how that conversation is recounted. Would it be suddenly very out of tone with our show? No, I mean, I think it's too amusing to leave that out or to portray it differently. I mean, it's going to be subtle. It's not like I'm going to add a laugh track in post. You know, cue the knee-slapping from the audience when Pulcher changes his mind and decides to take a nice silver bowl after all. It's funny, it's got a comedic element to it, and sometimes this show could do with a little bit of light-heartedness. In the grand scheme of things, this is a pretty rash move by Lucullus. He's essentially committing to a large-scale war in an unknown land with a polity that Rome can't really afford to fight right now. The kingdom is physically large and can raise vast armies. 
inhospitable terrain in the form of impassable frozen mountains, yawning rivers and endless deserts, combined with an army of terrifying barbarian horsemen. I mean, that's quite a task. There's outrage back in Rome. Lucullus doesn't have the authority to invade Armenia, and now he's sending upstart little envoys to threaten them with war? Mithridates and Tigranes know too that Lucullus is going off book with this one. But, lo and behold, Lucullus and around 12,000 Roman soldiers march into Armenia, setting the stage for the next showdown, the Battle of Tigranocerta. Lucullus chooses this particular city because he thinks Tigranes will be provoked into defending it. It bears his name and holds his treasury and his concubines. The city isn't actually finished being built yet, though the defensive walls are apparently 70 foot high. Mithridates is absolutely buzzing, his spirits soar. This is his chance for a comeback. The Romans are far from home, far from supply lines, massively outnumbered, lacking official support from the Senate, and marching into a vast, unforgiving land. In a scene set against a massive, dusty backdrop, he begins furiously advising Tigranes on how to deal with the threat, particularly in regard to tactics. He should not face the Romans head-on, but utilise his cavalry to constantly harass and wear them down, all the while burning nearby supplies and lands to starve the Romans out. Tigranes, upon seeing Lucullus and his few legions, is alleged to have quipped, If they come as ambassadors, there are too many. If they come as soldiers, too few. A quote like this aptly sums up Tigranes' attitude, an attitude that's going to cost him dearly. And even if Tigranes intended to actually take Mithridates' advice on board, he doesn't even get the chance. In a stunning, lightning bolt strike, Lucullus first feigns a retreat, drawing a sizable section of the Armenian right flank forward. He then leads an infantry force in a sweep around the outside of the city and outflanks the surprised Armenians. Lucullus himself leads a running charge downhill against Tigranes' cataphracts. And don't be mistaken here, this isn't brash bravado or machismo, this is a calculated risk by Lucullus. Having left some of his forces besieging Tigranocerta, he's aware that his forces are heavily outnumbered and opts for a quick knockout blow before Tigranes' hordes completely swamp him. Bellowing as he runs, Lucullus calls out to his men, This day is ours! This day is ours, my fellow soldiers! What TV this makes? I mean, come on. Imagine the cameras wheeling quickly on dolly tracks, following the charging Romans through the waves of dust being kicked up behind them, Lucullus bellowing his immortal words as sand flies all around them. Well, the effect is devastating. The Romans pull off a wheel-hand manoeuvre and manage to get themselves behind the mass of Armenian cataphracts, hacking at the horses' unprotected legs and slashing at their stomachs. It's ugly stuff. But it's a very effective tactic and smashes what was meant to be the cornerstone of the Armenian forces. The result is a stampede in which the cataphracts mow down thousands of their own men in an effort to get away. Tigranes' armies completely break and descend into a total rout. Both Mithridates and Tigranes flee for their lives. The citizens of Tigranocerta, largely comprised of subject peoples forcibly taken from their homes and resettled there by Tigranes, gleefully open up the city to the Romans, 
who, of course, plunder and burn it to the ground. But the taste of victory soon turns sour. The initial high of pillaging Tigran Aserta wears off. Under constant harassment from barbarian horsemen, using poison-tipped arrows and flammable mud called Moltha, the Roman legions, far from home, and now not even able to locate Mithridates or Tigranes, finally reach their breaking point. Lucullus seems to convince himself that he's beaten Mithridates and Tigranes. He even begins talking about an invasion of the Parthian Empire. The Parthian king, Phraates III, had refused to remain neutral. Understandable, considering his cultural links to Tigranes and Mithridates. Phraates was the ruler of the Parthian Empire from 69 to 57 BC. And in fact, Mithridates had sent a very interesting letter to Phraates, asking him for money and troops to help fight Rome. For now though, the wily Parthian aids neither side, and a Roman-Parthian conflict is avoided. But Lucullus's homesick and exhausted legions don't know this yet, and chatter about a potential expedition into Parthia causes them to mutiny. They refuse to follow any orders that involve either attacking Parthia or continually roaming aimlessly around Armenia, fighting random barbarian tribes. But what they do agree to do is march on the Armenian capital, Artaxa. Lucullus is banking on a decisive engagement to destroy Mithridates and Tigranes completely, and he's got to do it quickly before his men completely give up on him. In the following passages, Adrian Mayer and the Poison King describes how the vast expanses of the Armenian kingdom wear down and demoralise the Roman soldiers. Quote, Lucullus found it impossible to engage with Tigranes or Mithridates. They had become shadows, constantly withdrawing. Lucullus doggedly pursued. He took a lot of captives and amassed a great deal of exotic booty. Yet skirmish after skirmish proved indecisive. Lucullus and his army seemed to be chasing an illusion. Fleeting engagements were followed by unnerving silence. They never really lost, but they could not win either. By autumn, Lucullus had been drawn onto Armenia's highlands of golden-brown parched grass and alkaline lakes. Lucullus failed to understand the new guerrilla tactics that Mithridates had put in place, adopting the asymmetrical style of fighting that his barbarian warriors excelled in. Mithridates and Tigranes gave way in close quarters, avoiding direct conflict and turning the enemy's own momentum against them. While the Romans grew more frustrated and baffled, the barbarians and their tough little ponies were at home in the harsh landscape as fall turned to winter. They knew exactly where to find food, water, shelter and hideouts. They monitored the movements of Lucullus and his men, while Lucullus had no idea where he himself was, where the enemy was hiding or when they would strike next. The Roman army, unused to high-altitude weather, trudged on, wary, hungry, complaining. Where was the enemy hiding? How could the air be so frigid when the sun shone brightly in the azure sky? Suddenly, long before the Romans expected it, winter arrived. Snow blanketed the ground, icicles crusted the pine boughs, streams froze solid, the sun's rays gave no heat, and the glare on the snow blinded the men. The freezing temperatures gnawed at toes and fingers, and caused their breaths to congeal upon moustaches and beards, speedily forming icicles which hurt horribly. Ice on the dark rivers shattered when the horses tried to cross, and the jagged shards cut their legs. Wrapped in skimpy cloaks, 
The legionaries marched single file through narrow canyons and over frozen marches. They were always shivering now, huddling in frosty tents and melting ice to drink. The soldiers' complaints escalated into tumultuous assemblies in their tents at night and threats of desertion. The soldiers forced Lucullus to abandon his pursuit of the renegade kings. He accompanied his army back down from the mountains to the mild winter of the Tigris. Lucullus and his army were burned out. The officers and men castigated him as arrogant and distant, thinking only of enriching himself. Comparing their leader unfavourably to Pompey, who triumphed in Spain and Italy and looked after the welfare of his soldiers, they ignored Lucullus's pleas to resume the pursuit of Mithridates. In 67 BC, Lucullus's army camped at Nisibis and refused to budge. End quote. Mithridates, ever the opportunist, decides on a bold strike. Joined by Hypsocratia, his surviving entourage and 8,000 troops, Mithridates captures Pontus. It's a bold, stunning move. The Romans haven't properly organised the territory yet. You know, their forces in Asia Minor are a little askew right now. We now move into the penultimate battle of our series, and the last part of Act Two. The Battle of Zella sees Triarius, Lucullus's adjutant, attempt to defeat and kill Mithridates before his commander can get back to Pontus. The engagement is a disaster for the Romans, and once again provides us with some fantastic action and some nail-biting near-misses. The initial moves don't sway the battle in any major direction, but Mithridates takes an arrow in the cheek, barely missing his eye, causing some initial panic among his troops. This is our protagonist's first war wound, and he appears to be in bad condition initially, until some of his shamans manage to treat the wound. Mithridates is soon back leading again, defending against Roman attacks, when a freak tornado rips through the battlefield. This climactic event is interpreted from both sides as an omen, that they must seek a decisive engagement. Isn't that some fantastic imagery though? The two sides slugging it out, and a tornado rips through the area, sweeping men and horses over precipices, blowing formations out of line, and causing both sides to dart for cover in desperation. The power of the winds were, according to the Roman historian Appian, the likes of which were unknown in living memory. Our viewers are getting a first-hand perspective, without, of course, being blown off a cliff themselves. Once the winds pass, the battle resumes the next night. Donning his armour and helmet, Mithridates personally leads his troops to victory. In a genius move, they force the legionaries into pre-dug trenches, now filled with mud and water. They butcher the drowning and mud-caked Romans. But not before a Roman soldier manages to get right beside Mithridates in the chaos. He stabs him in the thigh, the only spot uncovered by armour, probably aiming to hit an artery. The Roman is quickly hacked to pieces, but Mithridates is in trouble here. He's bleeding profusely and drifting in and out of consciousness. His shamans again get to work and manage to stem the bleeding. As Mithridates regains some awareness, he orders himself lifted up into the air so his men can see that he is still alive, mimicking an event in which Alexander the Great did exactly the same thing. This would make a striking image for the penultimate episode of HBO's The Poison King. The camera in bird's eye view, pulling away slowly towards the heavens. Mithridates is held up towards the sky, arms outstretched, 
surrounded by men and cheers, torrents of rain pouring down across the grey shades of night. The old boy has done it. Against the odds, he's reclaimed his kingdom and defeated the Romans. Surely this is the beginning of a better chapter. Surely our protagonist has now overcome his greatest tests and can move towards the conclusion of his arc in glory, honour and optimism. Surely after being so close to defeat, Mithridates might make it after all. This brings us to the conclusion of the penultimate episode of this podcast series on the life of Mithridates. Join me next time and find out how we're going to conclude our wildly successful HBO series. Thank you for your time, thank you for listening, and see you soon. To subscribe to this podcast, just search for the Historical Motion Picture Organization on whatever platform you use, and hopefully you'll find me there. If you want to follow the podcast on social media, you can find me on Twitter by searching at HMPO Podcast, or on Instagram with the handle HMPO underscore podcast. You can find the show on YouTube by searching HMPO Podcast, and you can contact me directly by email at hmpo.podcast at gmail.com. Growing a podcast from humble beginnings is a very difficult thing to do, so if you can support the HMPO in any way, it would mean a lot to me. You can do this by following me on social media, you can share the podcast with even one other person, and you can subscribe to me and give me a good rating on whatever platform you listen on. I will really appreciate it. So thank you for listening, thank you for your support, and I hope you'll join me again soon in the ancient past.